So a, a doctor and a lawyer and a preacher go hunting. You already know it's a joke, right? And they see a, just a trophy buck, right? They're out in the woods, and they see this is a nice rack on this buck. And they all fire, and the deer falls. But when they go to investigate, it's clear that only one bullet struck the deer, but they can't find the bullet, and so they don't know which rifle, which gun it came from. And so they decided they would take it to somebody who might know. They took it to a lo- local taxidermy, uh, taxidermist to see if maybe he could tell them who shot the deer. And he said, well, let me look at the deer, and then I'll, I'll let you know if I can tell who killed this deer. And after a couple minutes, he said, well, obviously, the preacher shot the deer. And they said, well, how in the world can you tell? And he said, well, if you look at the wound, it went in one ear and out the other. (laughs) Yeah, glad to be back. Uh, Now, we make jokes like that because, unfortunately, there are far too many Christians, myself included at times, who are much more talk than we are action a lot of times when it comes to the Christian life. Now, to be clear, Christianity has a message. It is good news, and it is meant to be proclaimed. It has to be spoken. It has to be shared. But Christianity is more than just talk. And one way we need to communicate that is by even the way we use the word Christian. You see, in our culture, um, I don't know when it happened, but there's definitely been a shift in how that word Christian and all that it kind of is wrapped up, what that word means. And in our culture, I think the primary use of that word Christian is oftentimes as an adjective used to, to describe things. And so, for example, we go to Christian camps and we go to uh, Christian concerts and we listen to Christian music and we listen to it on our favorite Christian radio station. We wear Christian t-shirts and we wear Christian jewelry, Christian this, Christian that. Some even take it uh, a step further and we define ourselves as Christian Americans. Maybe not we, we don't do that outwardly, but we do think of ourselves sometimes that way. Even taking it a step further than that, we define ourselves as Christian Democrats or Christian Republicans. But in the Bible, the word Christian is not used an, as an adjective. It is always used as a noun. And hopefully you remember, maybe it's been too long ago for some of you, I won't name names, but maybe you remember way back in your language arts classes that when you have a noun, what's a noun need? A verb, right? Nouns need Verbs, and so does your discipleship. To be authentically Christian, you need to add some verbs to your faith. For example, in the classic chapter in the Bible on faith and what faith looks like, Hebrews chapter 11, the writer gives example after example of heroes of the faith of the Old Testament, and every one of them is depicted by a verb. And so Abel brought, and Abraham offered, and Noah built. And Jacob worshiped. And over and over, faith is depicted with verbs. And so what we're going to do over the next several weeks is we're going to look at the book of James. I love the book of James. It's my dad's favorite book. And um, it's not my all-time favorite book, but it's right up there. It's not to say that I don't like it. Again, I I do. Um, But I love Romans. That's my favorite book. And James is probably right there in the top three. Uh, I just, I love the practical nature of James. Now, we're not going to take a verse-by-verse look like we did uh, several, you know, for the first 
several months of this uh, year going through the uh, Sermon on the Mount, but we are going to take kind of an overall view and look at some different verbs that James gives us that hopefully we can add to our faith. And we're going to start with the verb that might be the least obvious, and yet I think it's probably the most important. And it's found in James chapter 1, starting in verse 22. Here's what James writes. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. I think the point is pretty obvious from what James says. The Christian life is doable. The Christian life is doable. In other words, there is true, true authentic Christian faith has a doing component. And this is a huge theme throughout the book of James. You're going to see it interwoven throughout the book of James as we weave through it. Now, for years, there are critics who have said that there, and even Bible scholars, who have said that there's this tension between what James says here in the book of James and what the Apostle Paul will write about in a lot of his writings. That there's this tension, this tension between the two of them. And so how do we make sense of that? Now, I don't think there is that tension. What I think is that James and Paul are writing about or emphasizing different things. Paul is emphasizing the fact that what we do doesn't produce salvation. And James is emphasizing the equal truth that salvation produces what we do. In other words, salvation is never the product of merit. In other words, we, we don't earn it, but salvation always produces ministry in our lives. And so James will say in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Well, in the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, James is not saying that we need to add deeds to our faith. He's saying that deeds are the evidence of what authentic faith looks like. For instance, I'm guessing you've never had this instance, but just hypothetically speaking, if you were to walk down the road and you see a motionless body on the side of the road, how are you going to determine if that body is alive or dead? Well, answer, you're, you're going to go over and you're going to see, is, is that body moving? Is it doing anything? Are their eyes twitching? Is their chest moving up and down? Can you hear any breathing? Can you find a pulse? All of those are signs of life, right? Because the absence of doing makes you think dead. And that's what James is trying to say, that you show what you really believe by how you actually behave. And Paul would say amen to that. In fact, let me show you the two chief places where Paul clearly says that we are not saved by what we do. And I want you to notice what he says is, comes as a result of of that. Ephesians chapter 2, these are two pretty, well, one in particular, very well-known passage. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, Paul says, for it's by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Just keep that in mind. It's not by works so that no one can boast. For we are, so as a result of this, for we are God's handiwork 
created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so we're not saved by what we do, but we are saved to do things. This has always been God's plan. Listen to what Paul says in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 8. He says the same thing. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. And I don't know how this could be any more clear than what Paul makes it here. Not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Paul goes on to say, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things. In other words, Titus, I want you to preach this over and over and over again. I want you to talk about it. I want you to live it. I want you to tell people all the time that they are saved by grace. Their, their salvation is a result of the grace and mercy of God. They were washed by the Spirit. They, that's why they were saved. Now you say that over and over again, and here's why you need to stress these things. Listen to the rest of verse 8. So that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. When you have been overwhelmed by the enormity of God's grace poured out on you, it's going to do something in you, and you're going to do something in the world around you. Some of you may know the name Herb uh, Kelleher. He was the CEO and founder of uh, Southwest Airlines, and the airline industry, as many of you know, is kind of an up-and-down industry. A lot of filings for bankruptcy in the, um, in the airline industry. But uh, Southwest Airlines kind of kept above the fray in a lot of ways and for four years kind of had unprecedented growth. But in the, I believe it was the 25th anniversary that they had, a financial advisor came to him, or strategist came to him, and he said, I'm looking at your you know, you're kind of your books and, and, and your, you know, your, your things, your financial reports. I'm not seeing any clear plan that you have. What is your, you know, what, what is your plan? And Kelleher said, I, I, I have a plan. Trust me, I have a plan. He said, well, what in the world is it? And Kelleher said, it's called doing things. That's my plan. It's called doing things. And that's a good plan. And I think that's what James is saying, that you never use grace as a rationalization for verb-free discipleship. That's a distortion of grace. So let me ask you this. If someone were to examine your life and say, what does being a Christian actually cause you to do? What would they see? Or as the old line goes, probably some of you are familiar with this. If you were accused of being a Christian, what evidence would there be to convict you? We can talk about things all day long, but what evidence would there be to convict you? Because we are not saved by doing, but we are saved for doing. So let's do the math. What does it mean to add some verbs to our faith? Three equations that I want to give you and hopefully have you remember this morning. And the first one is this. Knows does not equal does. It should, but it doesn't oftentimes. Knows does not equal does. Every year in America, roughly, and the numbers are a little bit different, but roughly 350,000 people a year have heart bypass surgery. 
So they're on the brink of death. Arteries are clogged. Skilled surgeons literally reroute arteries and, and save their lives. And they all get the same speech. Some of you have had heart bypass surgery or loved ones. All get the same speech, more or less. Here's what you need to do now, okay? We can, we can do surgery, but something in your life has to change, right? You need to stop smoking. You need to stop drinking. You need to eat healthier, and you need to exercise more. Now, you would think that being on the brink of death would cause you to at least examine some things and make the necessary changes. And yet, the, study, the stunning thing is that studies show, research shows, that within two years, they did studies and surveys on this, within two years, 90% of heart bypass patients made none of those changes. None of those changes. Which just goes to show you that knowledge does not guarantee life change. You can know things, but it doesn't mean your life is changing. And that's true in the spiritual realm as well, that growing disciples is more than just gaining insights. And we are deceived if, if we think that just coming in here and sitting in a pew for an hour or two and listening to somebody like me give you some spiritual aha and, 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 and we feel worse about, you know, uh, we, about not being better than we are and somehow that's going to make us feel better. We're, we're just completely deceived if we think that's going to do it. Like somehow that's going to result in, in this complete life change. Simply getting information doesn't produce transformation. James says that's as foolish as thinking that just looking at a mirror is going to make you look better. Now there are two ways. There are two ways that you can examine how you look, right? You can look at yourself in a photograph or you can look at yourself in a mirror. Now I'm assuming, and probably it's a safe assumption to say, that not a single one of you woke up this morning, looked at yourself in a photograph and thought, man, I look pretty good today. Or as my son would say, I look real good today, right? Um, but rather, what you did is you looked in a mirror and you said, no, I have some things to do today, right? To get ready. And God's word is like a mirror. And so don't be deceived into thinking that knows equals does. Let me illustrate this another way. There is a well-known set of theological dictionaries called the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. And it is an incredibly extensive works considered to be some of the best scholarship on New Testament Greek words that's ever been produced. And it was put together by a man named George or Gerhard Kittel. In fact, the, the dictionaries are often called just simply shorthand Kittel. Kittel was also a devoted Nazi. And I bring that up to say that one of the most knowledgeable scholars of the last century of our generation also supported perhaps the most wicked regime of any generation, right? And, and I know that's an extreme example, but I use it to point out the fact that how easily we can be deceived into thinking that simply knowing equals doing. That just because I'm learning things in my head somehow means that my life is changing. Like somehow by osmosis, I can get the life change that I need just, for show, just by showing up or, 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 or consuming this for this amount of time or that for this amount of time. You see, in the Western world, we think that you know something and then you go do it. And, and there, 
I get some of that, right? We, 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 we learn something, then we know it, then we go do it. But in the world that Jesus lived in, they believed that you, until you did it, you didn't really know it. Does that make sense? And so until you walked it out, until you lived it, until you practiced it, you didn't really know it. I think this is illustrated by one of Jesus's most famous stories. It's found in Luke chapter 10. And so Jesus tells the story of this guy who's going down to a city called Jericho. And then on the way, he gets attacked by robbers, beaten, left for dead in a ditch. And so there's two religious guys that go by, a priest and a Levite. They see him, but they don't do anything. They just walk by on the other side of the road. And then one guy comes along, a Samaritan, the guy that everybody listening did not want to be the hero of the story, is the hero of the story, because Samaritans, Jews, did not get along. And yet this Samaritan man comes by and sees the guy in the ditch, and he does something about it. He helps him, takes him in, bandages him up, pays for everything. Now, everyone knows what's coming next. They know what question Jesus is going to ask. So here's the question. Jesus asked them, which of these three, priest, Levite, Samaritan, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law, who is the one who precipitated everything by him asking a different question of Jesus that then um, sparks this conversation and sparks this story. He doesn't really want to answer the question. He, he knows the answer, but he doesn't really want to answer it because of the implications that come with it, but he can't help it. And so he says the right answer, the one who had mercy on him. Now notice what Jesus says next, okay? Or maybe let me say, notice what he doesn't say next. He does not say, go and feel likewise. He does not say, go and think likewise. What does he say? You can see it right there. Go and do likewise. Because you don't really know it in your head until it shows up in your hands and in your feet. Because knows does not equal does. Here's another important equation do is greater than don't. I think one of the reasons why a lot of us have accepted a verb-free Christianity is because we've mistakenly believed that being a Christian is primarily about a list of things that we don't do instead of what we do. Does that make sense? Like, like we, we, we can't, and the world kind of does this a little bit too, but we even do this to ourselves. Like, I'm a Christian, so I don't do that. You know, I'm a Christian, so I don't do this. But, and, and again, yes, there are some things that you say no to, but following Jesus isn't about a list of thou shalt nots, right? F following Jesus isn't about what we, what we are saying no to and what we are avoiding. Following Jesus is about what we are pursuing or more specifically, who we are pursuing. Now, again, you say no to th some things when you say yes to Jesus, but you say no to those things so that you can say yes to these other things. That's the whole purpose of following Jesus. It's not just to avoid and abstain. It is to say yes to these more important things that God desires for us to involve ourselves in our lives because holiness is more than just the absence of badness. It is the pursuit. It is the active pursuit and presence of goodness. We have been set apart from so that we can be set apart to. So let's go back to James. 
He's just gotten through saying, don't be deceived. It's not what you know, it's what you do that counts. Well, what does James mean? Give me an example, James. Listen to what he says in the very next verses. James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. You want to know what to do? Start with your tongue, James says. Start with what you say and what you don't say. James says a few verses earlier in verse 19, everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak, slow to become angry. So keep a tight rein on your tongue, that's first. And second, help people in distress, namely widows and orphans, as James says here, while keeping yourself unpolluted by the world. By the way, it's interesting, when you read this in the Greek, There is no and in between distress and to keep. So literally what it says as is look after orphans and widows in the distress to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. In other words, one of the ways that you and I keep from being polluted by the world is you stay committed to helping people in the world who are in distress. You know, I... I also find it interesting when I read this verse because that word religion kind of gets a bad rap nowadays, right? It's, it's kind of a negative term in a lot of people's minds. And it's popular to say, well, and maybe you've said this before, but I'm sure you've heard it before. It's popular to say, well, I'm, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, right? I, I, I'm, I'm spiritual, but I'm, I'm not religious, But James doesn't think religion is a bad word. Now, there is bad religion, he says that, but there's also good religion that is pure and faultless that God wants. You see, the thing about religion is it's communal. It has to be done together. Most of the time when someone says, I'm I'm spiritual, that means like I'm to myself. But religion requires us to do this together. That's part of this idea. You you and I have to do it together. It involves each other. You got to do it with other people. I mean, what does I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious even mean? Other than like, I think a lot of thoughts to myself, right? Think a lot of spiritual thoughts and I'm a deep thing. Like, what does that even mean? I don't think James would be impressed at all with your deep spiritual thoughts. I'm not saying it's wrong to think deep spiritual thoughts. Don't hear me say that. But like if that's, okay, I don't even, what, what does that even mean, right? James wouldn't be impressed with that at all. He, he doesn't want to know how you think differently. He wants to know how you act differently. Is your life making a difference to anybody else? Because there's a doing component to real religion that trumps what you're thinking. Several years ago, there was an editorial in the New York Times written by a man named Nicholas Kristof. And it doesn't take much to see in our media how much Christians are criticized and caricatured. And there are plenty of examples of hypocritical Christians. I get that, right? And I think we've all probably, if we took snapshots at different periods in our lives, probably could have our face on that as well for different periods. Um, there's plenty of examples that we can use for fodder. But Christoph took a different take, and I appreciate what he says. He wrote, In my reporting in, on poverty and disease and oppression, I've seen so many <coughs> excuse me, evangelicals who are disproportionately likely to donate 10% of their incomes to charities, to hunger, to malaria, to prison reform, to human trafficking or genocide. Some of the bravest people you ever meet are evangelical Christians who truly live by their faith. 
Now, I'm not particularly religious myself, he says, but I stand in awe of those I've seen risking their lives in this way, and it sickens me to see their faith mocked at New York cocktail parties. And I think he's right on. Are there Christians who are hypocrites? Absolutely. But I'm going to tell you, you go to the food bank, you go to prisons, you go to orphanages, you go to soup kitchens, and you're going to find a disproportionate amount of faithful Christians who are there because they understand that following Jesus compels them not just to think differently, but to act differently. Amen. You see, the vulnerable of our world, and I'm not saying, listen, do not hear me say the vulnerable in our world don't need Jesus, don't need deep thoughts. What they need is our action. People in our world need to know that we love and care about them, not by the words that we say, but by the actions that we engage in. And you know faith is real when you see someone do for somebody, especially those who probably aren't going to be able to do back for you. But that doesn't mean that doing is a bad investment because here's the last equation. James says that doing equals blessing. And he's just following what his brother taught him. As Paul would say in Acts chapter 20, verse 35, remember the words of the Lord Jesus himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so James says, you are blessed, you will be blessed in what you do. In the upside down kingdom economy of God, you are enriched when you invest in other people. Paul puts it like this in Titus chapter 3 verse 14. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good for two reasons, he says. Here's the first reason, and it's super practical. In order to provide for urgent needs. Like, why, why do you and I reach out to those who are hurting and in distress and in need in our world? Because they need it. Like, there are hurting people. There are distressed people. There are struggling people. And we need to reach out because they are struggling and we can help. Here's the second reason. So that we will not live unproductive lives. Another version puts it like this. Then our people will not have empty lives because the emptiest life is the life that's full of itself. And the fullest life is the life that empties itself for other people. And so when you do for someone who can't do back, the Bible says that the blessing goes both ways. They receive the blessing of help, and you receive the blessing of God. One of the best illustrations I've heard of this is a story I heard about from the life of a guy named Dan Clark. And Dan grew up in the Depression. He grew up in a very poor household. And so you can imagine how excited he was when his dad came home and said he had $20 and he was going to take him to the circus. So they went, they got in line, and Dan's just, I mean, you can imagine, young kid, he's dreaming about acrobats and uh, elephants and all the things that he's going to see at the circus, and he's getting so excited. And in front of them in line was a family of 10, a mom, a dad, and eight young kids. And dad said, Dan said, we didn't have much money, but they were poor. Or as we might say down south, they were poor. They were poor. They, and he said you could tell by the way that they dressed. They just had very, very little. But those kids were just as excited as Dan was. This was going to be the thrill of their life. And that father asked for, he's got up to the front of the line, the father asked for 10 tickets, two, two adults, eight children. And then his face dropped. Because as he began to count out the money, it became obviously clear that he didn't have enough. 
And that's when Dan watched his father reach into his pocket, pull out the $20 bill that he had, the only $20 bill that he had, drop it on the ground, and then pick it up and tap that father on the shoulder and say, excuse me, sir, I think this fell out of your pocket. And both men knew exactly what was happening. And that father, with tears in his eyes, grabbed Dan's father's arm, and he said, thank you. You have no idea how much this means to my family. And Dan and his father turned around and went home. And Dan wrote, we didn't go to the circus that day, but we didn't go without. And that day was one of the biggest lessons and blessings of my life. Because you see, the gospel is bigger than just you and I getting into heaven. The gospel is also getting heaven into you and I and expressing it through the world around us. The gospel compels us to add some verbs. Because when you stand before Jesus one day, and you will, all of us will, you don't want to hear, and frankly, you will not hear, well felt or well thought. You want to hear well done. Well done. 